story you are about to hear is true. Attention, all troops. In 1981, I saw the Smurfs for the first time on television, and I fell in love with them. I couldn't get enough of them. I know it was simple and silly, but like every kid in America, I was obsessed. Whenever we would go to the store, I would beg my mom to buy me a Smurf, and I actually developed quite a collection. It didn't stop at just the figurines. I had the house, which I still own to this day, and I also had a clay mold set where you could make your own Smurfs. And paint them. Now this was all great for me, but at the time, most of my friends were moving on to bigger boy toys. I guess you could say they were playing with GI Joe a lot more, and I like GI Joe, and I still like my Star Wars toys. But they were also getting into martial arts movies and all these other things. So I knew at least one of my friends was not a big fan of the Smurfs and would make fun of the fact that his little brother, who was three years younger than me, played with Smurfs, which he thought was silly. Of course, instead of me being, oh, I play with Smurfs, I went into hiding with my Smurfs. I never took them out. I kept them in my bedroom or in my living room when I knew friends weren't coming over. I would play with them, set them up in the village, and just have a great Smurfy time of it. One day, I was playing in the kitchen with the clay molds. I had just gotten a new thing of Play-Doh, and I was using them in the molds. And what was great about that is you could put blue clay in and try to build a Smurf out of Play-Doh, and you wouldn't have to paint it. At the same time, there was a knock at the back door. Now, that was always where my friends went. They would knock on the back door of my house to come in. So I panicked, and before I could do anything, a friend of mine came in. And it wasn't the friend who had the little brother, but it was another friend. And he saw me playing with the Smurfs and just started laughing. Now, it's not like I was 14. I was still a little kid at this point, but I guess that even in the young boy world, there's a pecking order of masculinity, and I was not fitting in at this point, and I stood at the threshold with my friends staring at me, and my secret love of the Smurfs was about to get out and perhaps ruin all my friendships, or at least brand me as someone who could be made fun of or develop some horrible nickname like Smurfy, or more probably Smurfette. This friend of mine, who I am still friends with, didn't tell anybody. Instead, he said, "Oh, cool Smurfs." He sat down at the table and played Smurfs with me. We made Smurfs throughout the day. We watched some TV. I showed him my Smurf village, and from that point on, whenever I wanted to play Smurfs, I could call him. Now that's a friend. That's someone you stick with your whole life. To this day, we're still in touch, and although we live a half a continent away from each other, if he ever comes over to my house, I'll show him my new Smurf village. His act of kindness and understanding is enough for me to consider him a lifelong friend. And why not? After all, Smurfy friends like that don't come around often enough. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Smurfs, or as they were known in Belgium, the Schrumps. We'll talk about it. Their creator, Peyo, how he got his start, how he created the Smurfs. Their origins, their conquest of the world, their movement to America, the animated series, and the 3D animated film that we can expect to come out sometime within the next two years. Meta Girl is back with a top five list, and we'll throw in a couple of musical surprises along the way. So, without further ado, let's Smurf the Smurf.
as many of you may know, the very famous creator of the Smurfs was named Peo. Of course, Peo was not his real name. It was the name he took in his professional career, and it was based on an English cousin's mispronunciation of his name, Pierre, which in its diminutive form is Piero, hence Peo. Peo's full name was actually Pierre Culliford. He was born on June 25, 1928, and he passed away on December 24, Christmas Eve of 1992. Peo was born in Brussels. He was the son of an English father and a Belgian mother. In school, his teachers didn't think he had much talent. But, as soon as he got out of school, he went to work for the Compagnie Belge d'Animation, which I know I'm butchering, but I am not Belgian, so I don't think that's that big a deal. But if you are Belgian and you are listening to this podcast, I apologize, because I'm probably going to be demolishing your language over the course of this podcast. The Compagnie Belge d'Animation, or CBA, was a small animation studio, which he worked at until after World War II. After World War II, the studio folded, and Peo would have to find work somewhere else. In 1952, Peo went to work for a children's comic magazine called Le Journal de Spiro, which had been publishing in Belgium since 1938. Peo wrote and drew a number of characters and storylines there. The one that would be the most effective, and the one everyone would gravitate towards, was Johan and Peewit or Johan and Peewee, as we came to know them. Johan and Peewee was set in the Middle Ages, and it was a sort of sword and sorcery magic. It had a very cool Middle Ages feel. Johan is this brave young page who serves the king, and Peewee is his faithful sidekick. Now, you might remember Johan and Peewee from the Smurfs themselves, but they predate the Smurfs, and, and the first appearance of the Smurfs was actually in Johan and Peewee, not the other way around. Now, how did Peyo come up with the idea for the Smurfs? Well, Smurfs were originally called Stromps, if I could say that right. And the Stromp, the word Stromp, and all the little Stromp-like things, or what we'd call Smurfy things, came about when Peyo was having a meal with a friend named Andre Franquin. Andre was French, and Peyo, who's Belgian, asked him to pass the salt, and he couldn't remember what the word in French for salt was, so he said, Stromph. Andre thought that was hilarious, and I guess Peo did too, and they just started saying Stromph for everything. So Andre gave him the salt and said, here's the Stromph. When you're done Stromphing, Stromph it back, and Peo and him basically started creating a language based on Stromphs. Peo started working on a new story for Johan and Peewee called The Flute with Six Holes. The story involved Johan and Peewee trying to recover a magical flute. While doing this, in this story, they meet a magical race of blue beings. And all the little blue beings look exactly alike except for their leader, who wears red. And Peo named these characters Stromps. When people got their hands on that story, they loved the Stromps. So much so that the very next year, Peo created the first independent Stromp story. Seeing that this was a very popular thing for children, they also decided to start merchandising them. From that point on, the Smurfs were Peo's central characters in everything. And although Johan and Peewee would continue to appear in their stories, the Smurfs would always be the main focus from now on. They were so popular that they transcended national borders and spread through Europe, through Asia, and then finally into the United States. Here's what the Smurfs are called in other countries. In Dutch, they're known as Smurfen, as Schlumpf in Germany, 
as Stromph in France, as Pitofos in Spain, as Smoles in Danish, as Puffy in Italy, one of my favorites, as Smurfy in Afrikaner, as Stromps in Serbo-Croat, as Kumafu in Japanese, as Langshinling in Chinese, and Dardis Sim in Hebrew. Of course, the name we're familiar with is the one they gave them in the United States, the Smurfs. The Smurfs continued to appear in comic format, but also made the jump to film, appearing in nine short films, and then in 1975 they appeared in a feature-length film called La Flute aux Six Strumps. The plot for this film was actually based on the 1958 story that started it all, The Flute with Six Holes. It should be noted that the success of that film spurred another huge Smurf hysteria in the form of the Smurf song as sung by Father Abraham. Father Abraham was actually a Dutch musician named Pierre Kartner, and in 1977 he was approached to do a promotional song for an animated movie, which turned out to be the Smurfs. They didn't think it would do very well. They only pressed a thousand copies. The very day it came out, it sold out. And it went on to a second pressing of 400,000 and then another 500,000. Then it started to be translated into different languages, all sung by Father Abraham. And eventually he scored a number one hit in 16 countries. As I mentioned, they had already started merchandising the Stromps back in 1959, and probably most importantly, they started creating small figurines of the Smurfs. Beginning in 1959, the company Dupuce started making them, and they made a series of three figurines, Papa, Normal, and Angry Smurf, and then in the next decade, they made a couple of larger figurines, but all of these were for sale only in the French and Dutch-speaking countries of the world. Then in 1965, Schleich, a German company, started to make truly mass-produced PVC Smurf collectible figures. The first three were Normal Smurf, Gold Smurf, and Convict Smurf. In 1966, the line was enhanced with Spy Smurf, Angry Smurf, Drummer Smurf. Then in 1969, two very familiar Smurfs were added to the lineup, Papa Smurf and Brainy Smurf. Throughout the 1970s, Schleich continued to produce Smurf figurines, and a rival company named Bully also started making them. These figures would play a prominent role in the Smurfs' migration to America. At some point in the late 70s or early 80s, Fred Silverman, who was president of NBC, had a daughter who had one of these toys, and she was quite taken with it. And Silverman thought, well, this thing looks good. Maybe I should bring it over to American television. So he negotiated the rights for the cartoons and brought them over to become an animated show in America. NBC added the Smurfs to their cartoon lineup in 1981. The show was produced by Hanna-Barbera, and the cartoon would eventually run for eight years. It was a huge success when it came out, and as I mentioned, the toys were in every store. Everyone was going Smurf crazy. The cartoon was even nominated for Emmy Awards, and won for Outstanding Children's Entertainment Series in the 1982 and 1983 seasons. And this success led to several prime time specials. You had the Smurfs Christmas special, you had the Smurfs Springtime special. Christmas, of course, could be tapped multiple times, so you had Tis the Season to be Smurfy, Smurfily Ever After, My Smurfy Valentine, and of course, to take advantage of the Olympic Games, they had the Smurfic Games. Now, not everybody got to see these because often what happened is they'd be shown and then never shown again, which was sad. They were never reincorporated into the Saturday morning lineup. I can't actually ever remember watching the Smurfic Games after its initial run and only have vague recollections of it, and I would love to see it again. The success of the spinoffs and the marketability of the Smurfs led them, of course, to the big screen, but not in the way that they deserved at the time. 
1984, I was psyched because the Smurfs and the Magic Flute came to the theater near my house. I'm pretty sure I was there on opening day. But when I saw it, it seemed really dated. It didn't look much like the animation of the show on television by Hanna-Barbera. And the Smurfs were hardly in it. It actually featured Johan and Pee-wee quite prominently. And the Smurfs sort of appear at the end. The reason for this is that the Smurfs and the Magic Flute was just a dubbed version of the 1970s Belgian cartoon that was ported over to America. The film was an economic bomb, and you would think that that might have an influence on the television series, but it didn't. The show continued its reign over Saturday morning cartoons for another half a decade. So I'm sure that everyone who is listening to this podcast has probably seen an episode of The Smurfs at one time or another. But if you haven't, here's an overview of what you're missing. The Smurfs are a group of magical beings who measure three apples high. They are, of course, blue and look very similar to one another. They are presided over by Papa Smurf, who not only has a beard, which differentiates him from the other Smurfs, but also wears red as opposed to white like the other Smurfs, which of course would lead to rumors and controversy that we'll talk about a little later. The Smurfs themselves usually have one trait that defines them, and that is often their name. So a Smurf who is grouchy all the time would be grouchy. A Smurf who is smart would be called brainy. It's very similar to the dwarves in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. As many of you may know, there was a female Smurf named Smurfette, and Smurfette was actually created by the nemesis of the Smurfs, Gargamel, in order to bring turmoil to the Smurfs, and hopefully so that he could capture a few of them. Of course, the plan doesn't work. Smurfette is turned into a good Smurf, and in an unusual and predictable, yet continuingly controversial twist, Smurfette becomes a blonde when she becomes a good Smurf. Here's a fun bit of trivia about Smurfette. Here are the actual ingredients that go into making a Smurfette. Sugar and spice, but nothing nice. A dram of crocodile tears. A peck of bird brain. The tip of an adder's tongue. Half a pack of lies, white of course, the slyness of a cat, the vanity of a peacock, the chatter of a magpie, the guile of a vixen, and the disposition of a shrew, and of course, the hardest stone for her heart. That is a high opinion of women they got there. What would a show about blue forest creatures be without a compelling villain? Gargamel, who is one of my favorite characters, runs throughout the entire series. Gargamel is a punching bag who can't seem to get anything right. Actually, towards the middle of the series, you start to feel sympathy for him because not only does he continually mess up and never catch a smurf, he always loses the smurf through trickery. Gargamel has a lot in common with Wily e. Coyote, and to me, I always wanted to see that Coyote catch that Roadrunner in the same way I really wanted to see Gargamel catch a smurf every once in a while. As the show progressed, you find out that amongst wizards, Gargamel is a ginormous joke, and it makes him seem even sadder. So why does Gargamel want to catch the Smurfs? Well, in the earliest adventure of the Smurfs, he finds out that the potion to turn things into gold requires a Smurf as an ingredient. This was it back in 1959 in the original comic book. This gets reused in the Hanna-Barbera series in the 80s, but later on he becomes so obsessed with the Smurfs that the quest for gold doesn't even matter. Sometimes he just wants to eat them, and at other times he gets so frustrated he says he doesn't want to turn them to gold, he doesn't want to eat them, he just wants to destroy them. Now that's some good mad wizard ranting. Gargamel can usually pick up a Smurf wandering through the forest, or by luck, or some crazy contraption just like Wile E. Coyote. One of my favorites was the Blue Magnet, which is a magnet that only attracts blue things, which is just a great premise for a cartoon. The one thing the Smurfs have going for them is Gargamel, no matter what he does, 
can never seem to figure out the location of the Smurf village. Of course, Gargamel's trusty sidekick is the cat Azriel. Later on, Gargamel would pick up another sidekick, an apprentice named Scruple, who to me just felt very extraneous. A big question that often people have is where do Smurfs come from? Well, besides the obvious magic of Gargamel, a Smurf can come only once in a blue moon. And that was actually established as part of the mythology in the first episode of the third season, where Baby Smurf is brought into the Smurf village by Feathers the Stork at the beginning of the episode. It's a pretty good episode. Eventually, Grouchy steals the baby Smurf because the stork wants to take it back. Because he's so dedicated, they allow the baby Smurf to stay in the village. And Papa Smurf sings a song at the end. And the lyrics go something like this. Once in a blue moon, a baby comes to stay. Once in a blue moon, your heart is smurfed away. And once in a blue moon, your heart is filled with love. And all things a baby brings from somewhere up above. That's just Smurfy. In 1982, the Smurfs were expanded to a 90-minute version of the show, and a new segment starring Johan and Pee-wee was added. Although they were interesting and added to the Smurf world mythology, the Johan and Pee-wee episodes were not very popular in America and were quickly dropped. The Smurfs could definitely be preachy. Many of the episodes had a tendency to try to teach a lesson. Many of you might be familiar with a cartoon called Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. This late 80s mess was an anti-drug video and animated special that appeared on television and was distributed on VHS. It was promoted by McDonald's and featured a lot of Saturday morning cartoon characters basically telling you that drugs are bad and drugs are wrong. Amongst those were three of the Smurfs. Papa Smurf, Smurfette, and Brainy. Now, that was not the first instance of the Smurfs giving an anti-drug message. Another one of my favorite episodes of the Smurfs was called Lure of the Orb, and this is from the 1986-1987 season. In it, a magic orb is found, and poet, handy, and painter fall under its hypnotic lure. The lure gives you the illusion that you have heightened inspiration, which is exactly what drugs are supposed to do in almost every special against drugs. It's weird that it just sort of fits right into the Smurf lineup and wasn't labeled a very special episode but it is a very special episode and if you need to watch just one episode of the smurfs you should watch lure of the orb five four three two one greetings retro fans this is metagirl with the top five smurfiest smurf episodes of all time number five smurf colored glasses Wacky hijinks ensue when Handy creates a pair of rose-colored glasses to make Smurfette fall in love with him. But Smurfette is captured by Gargamel and falls in love with him instead. Number 4. The Purple Smurfs. A disease is turning all of the Smurfs purple. Can Papa Smurf come up with the cure in this zombie-inspired Smurf adventure? Number 3. The Hundredth Smurf. The only way to cure the bad luck besetting Smurf Village is to do the Dance of 100 Smurfs. The problem? There are only 99 Smurfs. Luckily, Vanity's reflection has come to life, but then he goes missing. Can the Smurfs find him in time for the dance? Number 2. The Incredible Shrinking Wizard Gargamel is shrunk down to Smurf size and must perform an act of kindness to regain his former stature. Will the G-Man do something good before he's eaten by his own cat? And the number one Smurfiest Smurf episode of all time is... Lore of the Orb. In this very special episode of the Smurfs, several of the Smurfs become addicted to a magical orb that makes them think they are creative. It is up to Papa Smurf and the others to help them break their dangerous addiction. 
And there you have it, the Retro's Top 5 Smurfiest Smurf Episodes of All Time. Until next time, list fans, this has been Metagirl. One of the elements in the Smurfs' winning formula is the great voice actors that they brought aboard. The great Don Messick did the voice of Papa Smurf and Azrael. You also had Paul Winchell playing Gargamel. In later seasons, you have the legendary Jonathan Winters doing the voice of Grandpa Smurf, the hardest working man in voice acting. Frank Welker lent his voice to several of the characters on the show, including the very famous Hefty Smurf. And of course, Smurfette was voiced by the very talented Lucille Bliss. Towards the end of the show, in 1989, the ratings were starting to flag, and they decided to try to revive the show by adding some novelty, which involved time traveling. So in the show, the Smurfs leave the village as a whole and travel through various times and locations throughout history. Now, the fun thing about this was that in each of those times and places, they would encounter a person who looked exactly like Gargamel, but if they were in Egypt, he would be an Egyptian Gargamel. If they were in Russia, he'd be a Russian Gargamel. I think Papa Smurf later explained this as they were seeing ancestors of Gargamel in these times and places. Personally, I did not care what the explanation was. I just found it hilarious because there is nothing on this earth that's funnier than an Irish Gargamel. Of course, this little twist was not enough to save the show. It was obvious to everyone that the show had smurfed the shark. And on August 25th, 1990, NBC canceled the Smurfs. Thus, a show that had come to define the commercialized revival of Saturday morning cartoons in the 1980s came to an end. Now, although the Smurfs were very popular on television, their reach actually extended beyond the tube. There was a very popular traveling ice show of Smurfs on Ice. That's right, the Smurfs were the children's act in the traveling show of the Ice Capades, and after the show retired, the Smurf suits from the show actually went to Ice Capade chalets, which were the chain of ice rinks. So if you went to one of those Ice Capade chalets, you could actually see a person dressed up as a Smurf, which is rare, outside of another place where the Smurfs got tied into, which was theme parks. King's Entertainment Corporation bought the rights to have the Smurfs appear in their theme parks, and starting in 1984, some Smurfy attractions started to show up. And not only did they have Smurf attractions, but had people, of course, dressed up in the outfits walking around. Some of the rides and the parks that they appeared at were at King's Island near Cincinnati. They had the Smurfs Enchanted Voyage there. It was similar to Disney's It's a Small World, where people would ride around in a boat, and would be sung to by a whole bunch of Smurfs. This ride sadly closed in 1991. In King's Dominion, they had Smurf Mountain. This was closed and replaced by the very popular Volcano Blast Coaster in 1998. At Great America, Smurf Woods had a small steel coaster called the Blue Streak, which is now the Rugrats Runaway Reptar. They also had a Smurf Village complete with mushroom houses. Smurf Woods was closed in the early 1990s and replaced with Nickelodeon Central. In 1984, Carowinds added Smurf Island, which was a children's play area located on a small island. And finally, in Canada's Wonderland near Toronto, Smurf Forest opened in 84. It featured a walkthrough attraction that had been Yogi's Forest since the park opened in 81. It also had outdoor shows featuring the Smurfs. The Smurfs also made it onto our plate, most famously as Smurf Berry Crunch Cereal. This was launched by Post in 1983 and was later renamed Smurf Magic Berries in 1988. There was also Smurf Pasta from Chef Boyardee, which was highly underrated at the time. I like the ones with meatballs. As I mentioned earlier, the Smurfs were not without controversy. A lot of people thought that the way the Smurf society was created 
it seemed rather communistic. And even a rumor was spread that the word Smurf stood for socialist men under a red father. Now, I don't know how true it is. I guess you could read into the way the Smurfs live being some sort of communist utopia, but I think it was a time when people were very afraid of things, and obviously many of us watched the show growing up, and we did not fall under the spell of communism. Isn't that right, comrades? In 2005, the Smurfs made a very famous comeback in a ad for UNICEF, where Smurf Village is actually destroyed by carpet bombing. The ad was designed by UNICEF with the approval of the family of Peyo. The 25-second spot was shown on national news after the 9 p.m. time slot to avoid children seeing it and was very effective in Belgium and helped to raise a lot of money to help former child soldiers from Africa. So now where are we with the Smurfs? We're at the verge of a new Smurf renaissance, and I'm not sure if it's going to be good or bad. I am, of course, hopeful. But in 2010, that's very close to now, so maybe 2011 if things get pushed back, we can expect a major motion picture of the Smurfs. Of course, the thing will be computer animated, and it has been revealed that it, it will get a 3D release. The movie is going to be directed by Colin Brady and is rumored to have John Lithgow attached to the project. In what capacity, I don't know. So in December of 2010, I hope we all have a very, very Smurfy Christmas. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist. If you want to be my friend, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagirl for contributing another great top five list this week. If you have an idea for the retroist, make sure you email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. If you have an idea for a top five list, email it to metagirl at metagirl at retroist.com. Well, thanks again for listening. I hope you have a smurfy weekend and a safe and happy 4th of July. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.